Welcome to the Government Services Chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians podcast. GSASEP represents emergency physicians who work in the federal government, including active duty military, National Guard, and military reserves, as well as the Veterans Administration, Indian Health Service, and other federal agencies. Our mission is advancing emergency care for America's heroes. In this podcast, we bring you lectures and conversations with leaders in federal emergency medicine to help you better care for your patients and lead your departments. The views expressed on this podcast are personal views and do not represent the views of the Department of Defense, any branch of the military, or the federal government, and they do not constitute endorsement of any product by any of these entities. Our next leadership lecture is by Colonel Bonnie Harstein. Hi, I'm Colonel Bonnie Hartstein, Director of the AMED Quality and Safety Center and Emergency Medicine Consultant to the Surgeon General. Today, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about physicians as safety leaders, risk and liability reduction in the emergency department, and share with you what we've learned uh, over the last several years in the Army regarding uh, reduction in patient safety errors and events, and also help you in a way that can influence your ability to be a better leader, create stronger and safer teams in your practice, and put your uh, practice in a, in a safer way and reduce risk uh, when you see patients. These are our learning objectives. First, I'm going to introduce you to the five principles of high reliability organizations. And help you understand how these set the conditions for the delivery of safe care. Then I'm gonna explain the role of the physician, both as a formal and informal leader in influencing zero harm. I want you to be able to kind of understand some of the tools that we have put in place in MedCom and that you may be able to use in your practice to um, investigate harm and near harm events and how to create a safe environment in your teams. And then we're gonna talk a little bit about cognitive pitfalls and strategies to avoid them in your practice. Patient safety is good medical practice. Did you know that medical errors are the third leading cause of death after heart disease and cancer in this country? In fact, according to a Johns Hopkins report in 2018, over 250,000 people die in the hospital each year just as a result of medical error alone. And other resources claim as many as almost up to 500,000. Drug complications alone account for almost 20% of adverse events overall. And I mention this because in the emergency department, Drug complications tend to be, or medication errors, are one of our highest vulnerabilities. So what particular pitfalls do we have in the emergency department? Well, we're operating in a pretty high-risk environment, and that shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. Patients are strangers. We have no relationship with them, by and large, except maybe the frequent flyers who you don't want the relationship with, but we don't really know our patients. We don't know their medical history. We haven't really, um, we don't know much about um, even if they've had procedures recently. Um, we also dispense a lot of medications. Um, and just by the sheer volume of medications that we uh, dispense, there's a higher likelihood of a medication error. Uh, potential drug adverse event, serious and significant, um, are all part of the risk of dispensing drugs. Um, and we are delivering drugs in a potentially emergent and um, high-risk way, like we're delivering them in a central line where if something's going wrong, it's going to be, um, they're potentially going to get a large amount of medication, um, blood, uh, products quickly uh, centrally. So that has, a, again, confers a higher risk. We may do a lot of verbal orders in our, free, in our fast-paced environment. We're asking nurses or other 
folks to help us out and may um, that potentially could be misinterpreted, misunderstood. We have a high patient turnover and then we have a difficult, we really don't follow up most of our patients. Um, if they're having a drug reaction at home, we may not know that and may go to their primary physician. This is just a snapshot of some old data that just gives you kind of an overview of joint patient safety reported events in the emergency department um, for the period of um, during uh, December time, during the 2017 timeframe. And you can see that lab medication errors, um, patient AMA device malfunctions can all um, cause, you know, this is kind of the Pareto chart of, of things that we face in terms of, of risk events. How do you create a safer system? Well, if you approach patient safety from a pathophysiology type of, uh, as if the system is, is the human system, we would do it as a disease management approach where we'd study the pathophysiology, recognize and treat problems when they happen, try to find prevention and use a multidisciplinary team. And I think patient safety is really similar. So we need to know like, what are the guts? What are the systems that work together well or don't work together well to get you to a safer environment? And those are really the HRO principles and the three pillars upon which they rest for um, a medical institution, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, we want to recognize um, pathology. When things go wrong, what do we do about it? How do we address it? And how do we get to that root cause? We want to put place, put things in place that prevent errors from happening. So these are like your preventive medicine aspects of creating a situation or a system that mitigates errors before they occur. And then we want to make sure we're leveraging uh, our multidisciplinary team and using a number of different processes to, to get after that. Uh, we've learned from industry leaders, some of the best in the country, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, Johns Hopkins, uh, Herman Memorial, they've all put programs in place and we have incorporated some of those, find some of those standards into our practices and, uh, and have had some good success with it. But keep in mind that we have number of systems that are not uh, designed to make our systems safe. And we are humans and our interaction with those systems and the human systems engineering uh, from a human systems engineering perspective may set us up for error. So recognizing them and asking and, and demanding really that our systems are created in a way that's more error proof. Um, and this has been a great, there's been a great advances in other industries along the lines of human systems engineering, but I think the medical institutions have been pretty slow in this realm, and it and it just amazes me how um, much our systems rely on us, our memory, um, our our um, physical doing checks, etc., where the systems could be created to be a lot safer. So, what is an HRO? What is a high reliability organization? Is that like JCO or some kind of thing, a certification? Well, it's actually not. Um, this is just a term that is given to high-risk uh, industry industries that where the errors that might occur could be catastrophic. Uh, you see some examples there of um, nuclear, uh, firefighting, um, even medicine, you know, has the potential to be an HRO, but unfortunately we make a lot more errors than we should. Certainly more than we see in terms of the airline industry that has made great strides in becoming a safer uh, industry. So this is a book called Managing the Unexpected, written by White and Sutcliffe, and it talks about the principles of high reliability organizations and breaks it down into five critical elements. These have really 
really um, a lot of implications in medicine. And I put in green here the ways that we can mitigate or we can get after um, using these principles in medicine. So preoccupation with failure, what does that mean? That means you don't normalize irregularities. If things go wrong, we, um, we want to know it and we want to actually investigate what happened, even if it doesn't cause harm, because focusing on the near misses um, or the things that are a little wrong may lead to be like the tip of the iceberg and show us where our, where our risks uh, lie and what things we can change before they become bigger problems. Reluctance to simplify means basically don't jump to an easy conclusion. That's why we take all of our Sentinel or DOD reportable events and do a root cause analysis asking the five whys, really getting down to the absolute essence of why something occurred and not just what, ha what appears to be the reason at first glance. Sensitivity to operation is really to be aware of what you're doing. And we all think that we're aware of what we're doing, but we're humans. And like I said, we just, we go on autopilot. Sometimes the most experienced person, surgeon, ER doc can still make a mistake by just not being in the moment of focused on what they're doing. And for that, we have um, tools like the Universal Protocol that ask us to stop and restate with the team, you know, this is the right patient, this is the right procedure, this is the right side, this is what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, so it's that stop that you build in so you continue to have that sensitivity to what you're doing. The commitment to resilience talks about bouncing back and containing errors when they do occur. And that we do through training and um, also instituting a just culture. So people feel that errors are not, when errors happen, that isn't a punitive culture, but we're able to kind of bounce back and learn from them. And then deference to expertise. Everyone is an expert in their, everyone, in their area. And we need to empower everyone to have a voice and create that culture of safety. I've seen time and time again, when errors occur, there may have been someone in the room who felt that they knew or saw it happening, but didn't feel empowered to speak up. They didn't want to challenge the fact that they're saying, well, the, the, the sponge count is fine. Well, the, the, the sponge tech or the, one of the medics saw that it wasn't, but he didn't want to go against the surgeon or didn't want to speak up and say, is that the right medication? I'm not sure that that's really what, uh, that what we need to be giving. So giving everyone the voice um, means that you value everyone in your huddles and as you're um, in interacting with people. That creates a safer environment. So I talked about high reliability, but what about high reliability for healthcare? Is there anything different there? Well, um, there's been a lot of talk about this and in um, Chasen and Loeb, who are joint commission uh, leaders, wrote a book um, or write a, wrote a paper actually called High Reliability in Healthcare, Getting There from Here. And in that paper, they described three pillars upon which high reliability model works for safe for healthcare, that you need to have a leadership commitment to zero patient harm, um, to institute a safety culture, and then you would have robust process improvement to correct errors that were found. But if your leadership is not 100% committed to patient safety, then there's a lot of mixed messaging, and then other things tend to take priority, uh, speed, uh, volume, money, etc. And that does not create the right environment for a high reliability model. Um, also a safety culture. This is like I talked about before, empowering the staff to speak up about patient risk that ties very closely in with leadership, but it talks to leadership at all levels. So think about your role in these two areas. Here you see this visual description, depiction of errors. Um, we know that we've, we've heard this described before that there's usually a Swiss cheese layering of errors or problems that happened in our safety net 
that enabled the harm event to go through. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what we did in the Army to try to plug those holes. In the Army, we developed what we call the RESET, or Root Cause Analysis Engagement Support Team, to go to hospitals and assist them in doing their RCA for Sentinel events. And what we found over and over again was these things I've highlighted in red. The physician leaders did not empower staff to voice concerns. They were not discussing risk and physician and mitigation plans in their briefs. And that even though there were actually standards in place, um, they, the leadership was not emphasizing the standards. And by and large, as an organization, we've become a little bit more lax on following safety protocols. We also found that there was an error in communication between staff for critical information. So I told you before that we um, borrowed from industry some of the best practices. And this is a description of what we did in the Army to try to institute HRO type principles in our MTFs using the information that we learned from RESET to pick the practices that we thought would be most effective at mitigating the risk that we saw again and again and the errors that we saw uh, were occurring in our hospitals. This is the top six safety practices. And what you can see is that they're occurring at all different levels within the MTF. Um, the leaders and it are doing a leader daily safety brief. That means usually in the morning, during their morning report, they're talking about whatever safety events may have happened within the organization over the last 24 hours and risks that the organization is facing right then. One and three are very connected because the unit-based huddle where uh, wards and clinics are meeting earlier in the morning to, than the number one daily safety brief, they're rolling that information into the daily safety brief. Maybe they're short staff, maybe a vital piece of equipment is, is, um, is broken, or maybe they need, um, you know, a, a, this leadership to have awareness of something that's of critical importance. Maybe something happened over the evening that they want the leaders to know about. So one and three are represent our tiered huddle system. Two is the safety leadership rounds where the command team is walking the, walking the wards and the units on a weekly basis, engaging in frontline conversation with staff about issues related to safety. This communicates to everyone that leadership commitment to safety. And then um, these leadership teams are creating a tracker uh, with the very important feedback to the um, staff with um, mitigation and, and, and um, things they've done to try to mitigate those errors or, or put, put stops or, or improvements in place. That's a very important part of this because without that feedback, um, it can actually undermine the safety culture by people feeling like people really don't care after they've voiced concerns. It doesn't mean everything gets corrected right away. There can be parking lots or reasons why things can't be corrected, but the feedback to the staff is really important. We've also emphasized the use of SBAR, which is Situation Background Assessment and Recommendation, um, as part of the communication tools for the relay of critical information. This isn't meant to be used out as a sign out um, because, of course, there's often a lot more information that needs to be revealed between, you know, or conveyed between two people at a shift change. But this is this is actually I think of this is the way that we do when we call a consultant. You know, I have a 62 year old man. He has a history of coronary artery disease. He's coming in with chest pain. Um, I think you need to come down and see him right now. His EKG shows um, an STEMI. So, you know, we're, we're pretty much getting through this type of communication tool whenever we are discussing something with a consultant. And um, the recommendation part is really important because it's part of that recommendation that the, the person delivering the information has ownership and, and, and is able to critically think through the problem at hand. Um, and then, of course, um, 
uh, five, the six is the universal protocol. That is that final time out, right patient, right, right site, um, right, um, you know, right procedure. And, uh, and five is a surgical brief and debrief. And that occurs in all of our operative areas before and after um, uh, surgical procedures or operative procedures um, going over the a checklist guided communication with um, the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, the techs, the nurses, um, we're all empowered to speak up. The interesting thing about this is that the debrief starts with the tech or the kind of low man on the totem pole in the OR so that if they thought they saw something go not so right, they're able to say it in, instead of waiting. Uh, if it was the opposite and the surgeon said everything went fine, um, it would be potentially too intimidating for others to challenge that. So we, we purposely put the order of the brief, um, uh, surgeon first in the surgical brief, and then the debrief starts with um, the medics and nurses. So while you know we're not perfect, we have shown over time uh, a bit of a decrease. Now 2020 seems to be going up, and we are looking into that. But we were showing kind of a steady decline in DoD reportable events, and we hope that that has something to do with the institution of these practices and a safety culture. Uh, incidentally, we've recently seen a bit of a drop off on the universal protocol use, and then um, an uptick in our wrong site surgeries and unintentionally retained foreign objects. So, um, interesting uh, potential correlation there. I bring this just culture slide up because I think it's really important to emphasize the importance of not punishing people for errors. If you're in a shame and blame culture, your risk of increased errors really goes up. I mean, you, you really have an increased risk for error because then you're really undermining what you call a safety culture. Now, I know that we can't mitigate the fact that we get sued for things. And in that um, medical malpractice realm, people feel like they're being punished. Um, and, and I get that. And I don't know. I, I haven't really quite figured out how um, to mitigate that except for leadership to, to address that with a, hey, you know, this isn't your fault type of thing. But we are um, pretty quick to, to punish and blame people. And we have to be very careful that if, uh, yes, if people are doing reckless behavior, we have a place for that. But uh, we are often um, victims of the process and the systems in which we work. And so these processes, these top six type practices help us to mitigate these uh, human errors and, and help us to reduce at-risk behavior, um, keeping us all on the same sheet of music and, and giving us an overall um, better environment. But when things do go wrong, uh, this gives you a way of approaching it to see what to do with the individuals involved. I want to talk a little bit about our individual risk that we bring just because of the pitfalls that we can have in our thinking and bias. I find this work really interesting. And I wonder again, why we don't have maybe more stops in place to help us mitigate this risk. But, you know, we bring to the table a lot of our own personality, our own experiences, and um, that can set us up for uh, set us up for failure to some extent. Um, and I just want to share with you some of these uh, kind of cognitive errors that we fall prey to and help you sort of challenge yourself to um, make sure you're doing everything you can to not, um, not succumb. <laughs> this is just to show you some of the literature out there on cognitive errors. Um, there's a very good book, um, Jerome Groupman out of Harvard, about how doctors think they talk about um, misdiagnoses and, and cognitive errors. And just to say, you know, in patients who um, are admitted with errors in diagnosis and errors uh, in, in, in ED litigation, a lot of it comes from delayed or misdiagnosis that um, in part owes its origins to some of these errors that all these cognitive errors I'll share with you now.
Here's a list of some cognitive errors um, that are worth thinking about. And this is um, some things you probably heard of these before, anchoring, where you have a tendency to fix uh, fixate on a specific feature of a presentation too early, and then don't change your thoughts even as you are um, look, faced with other evidence. Uh, so this is maybe improved by asking, you know, what else could be um, challenging yourself uh, by asking, you know, what else could this be as opposed to, you know, thinking just down one line. Uh, confirmation basis, which is you come up with an idea and then everything you're um, seeing, you tend to use to support the idea and discount otherwise contradictory information. Uh, this you have to have a fair amount of personal insight to realize you're doing. But again, engaging a team, I always like to discuss the patient with the nurse and see what she thinks or he thinks. And that sometimes brings me um, out of an anchoring or a confirmation bias thought so that um, I include other members in my decision making or, or at least my thought process. Um, error two to inheriting someone else's thinking. I mean, we can also be um, led down a path by the turnover, right? We can say, hey, this is a guy who just has a GI bug. I've had that. And then you go in and wow, now he's got right lower quadrant pain. So um, making sure you're kind of uh, in this diagnostic momentum, you know, um, try to you know challenge and rethink things just within the making sure that you you've also given your brain uh, the the opportunity to rethink the evidence and make sure that you have um, established the diagnosis in your mind that really makes sense um, and not just take everyone's you know we we definitely need to take uh, the input of the team before us but um, we should also use critical thinking at the same time. All right, so these first, the errors in prevalence or perception or estimation, I find these to be interesting because I know that some shifts seem to take on a theme where you have um, one kind of overwhelming diagnosis, and sometimes it's a pretty rare diagnosis. So you're sort of thinking, well, wow, is this really, I think that's gambler's fallacy. What's the chance that I have yet, you know, another DVT and a guy who just uh, was on a, uh, you know, who had leg trauma or who had uh, recently had a, a surgery and was in bed for a longer time. Like it seems sometimes you think that something is so infrequent that there's no chance you would have two on the same shift store or, or the other thing, common things being common, like, you know, you're pretty easy to knee jerk um, what you frequently see um, and not what you don't frequently see. And we had a, a, a trainee with back pain and, you know, and actually he did have um, some nerve, nerve impingements, uh, findings, but it was just, it seems so unlikely that he would really have not only tingling in his leg, but also just a um, functional component that led him to an MRI. But, you know, I have to thank the resident who did a really thorough exam because I was just much more inclined to just think, oh, his, his tingling in his leg from his back pain is just, you know, just another trainee with back pain. So we have to be careful that way. I, I am, you know, just humbled by reading these and, and thinking through some of the, you know, potential errors I could have made or even errors who knows, you know, that um, we have to be so careful and vigilant again. Uh, fundamental attribution error, attributing blame for a circumstance or event to other people and ascertainment by seeing what you expect to see. Just be careful. I know we definitely tend to be a little bit harder on our patients who have um, problems that we perceive of their own um, accord potentially uh, substance abuse or chronic pain or, you know, we have to continue to have that level of compassion for patients. I remember a story from medical school where the um, where there was a woman who kept coming in, kept coming into the ED and um, 
the story was that she always had some kind of pain, always had some problem with psychotic, all these things. Well, the one time she came in, she had an ectopic pregnancy and succumbed to that uh, and um, had a very, you know, a, a pretty, um, became pretty sick. I, I'm not sure if she died or not. I don't remember the end of the story, but I'll say that, you know, everyone just kind of put her to the side again because here she was with another um, episode of this or that and the other. And uh, without really rethinking the problem each time, you um, you can uh, miss that type of a problem. And finally, I think that, um, you know, errors associated with the physician affect of personality. And then I think that we're all sort of a little bit guilty of this, where we, you know, tend towards action rather than inaction. So we sometimes do too much, um, maybe medical legally, maybe worried that if we don't do it, something, you know, bad will happen. In Pete's trauma, there's a lot to be said for not doing as much imaging as we think we may need. We don't see it very often, but, um, there's a lot in the literature about, you know, limiting how much uh, imaging, abdominal head imaging based on, you know, really doing a critical analysis of, of what and why and applying um, the right standards and, and practices. Uh, omission, you know, if not doing what you think you may want to do, you know, like it's sort of like if you think of doing it like an LP, just go ahead and do it. Don't not do something and talk yourself out of it. And then overconfidence. And, you know, we all need to be uh, continuously humble about making sure that we are taking in all the information to make the right decision. GSASEP is proud to be the premier continuing medical education source for military and federal emergency physicians. To purchase CME for the episode you just listened to, please click on the link in the show notes. The Government Services Chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians promotes quality emergency care and enhances the development of emergency physicians who serve our nation from training through retirement. Learn more about our chapter at www.gsacep.org.